And now we take you to Evangel Church in Tallahassee, Florida, to another powerful, life-changing message. For more information, visit our website, evangelag.org. We're in a series of messages called Spiritual Burnout, When Doing What You Can't Isn't Enough. And today, I want to talk to you about the man who couldn't or wouldn't forgive. The man who wouldn't forgive. Now, guys, I pastored now as a, as a lead pastor for almost 35 years. And one of the things I've noticed is that people begin to burn out often when they have unresolved conflicts in the house of the Lord. Everybody listen to me. Everybody look at me. When we're in the world, when you're at school or you're at work or you're in the neighborhood or you're in the marketplace and you're around unbelievers, if they don't treat you right, well, you just kind of take that in stride. But you know what? When we get into the house of the Lord and when there's somebody that calls himself a brother or a sister in Christ, when they don't treat us right, well, it hurts even more because we kind of trust everybody a little bit more in the church. We trust that everybody is going to be a little bit more like Jesus. And the truth is this, we're becoming more like Jesus every day, but we've not yet arrived. And sometimes your wants and needs and desires can come into conflict with somebody else's wants and needs and desires. And when there's conflict, it's so important that we get it straightened out according to the scripture. Well, there's a man in the Bible named Ahithophel, and sadly, he didn't get things straightened out according to the scripture. Let's read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23. This is out of the New Living Translation, and this is the last we hear of this man in the Bible. Here's the last commentary on him. It says, when Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey, he went to his hometown, he set his affairs in order, and he hanged himself. He died there and was buried in the family tomb. Nice to read this verse and I think, how in the world did things get so bad that Ahithophel ends up taking his own life? Because this man was a member of King David's cabinet. In fact, he was a trusted advisor. David had two trusted advisors. One of their names was Hushai and the other is Ahithophel. And the Bible says that this man's advice and this man's counsel was like God himself speaking to you. In fact, in 2 Samuel 16, verse 23, I want us to read this aloud and loudly. Come on, everybody look at it. Everybody open your mouth. Everybody read it aloud together with me. There's something that happens when you hear your own mouth speaking the word of God. Let's, let's read it together. Here we go. For every word Ahithophel spoke seemed as wise though it had come directly from the mouth of God. Let's try it one more time. We're just about to get there. Here it is. For every word Ahithophel spoke seemed as wise as though it had come directly from the mouth of God. Oh, wouldn't you like to have a room full of Ahithophels around you? Wouldn't you like to have advisors and, and counselors who are going to speak advice to you and wisdom to you as if it's coming from the very mouth of God? Something happened between Ahithophel and King David. Ahithophel loved and respected King David. However, something happened 
and he lost his love and his respect and it was turned into disrespect and resentment and even hatred. And understand what went on. We got to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Reba. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Would you repeat that sentence with me? However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. How many of you know, whether you're a king or whoever you are, you don't need to be watching other women take baths? He looked out over the city. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having, men having, having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Let me just stop right here. It says that he brought her to him and she slept with him. Folks, we don't know if this was a consensual act of adultery. We don't know if David forced himself on her. We don't know if it was rape. I mean, she very could be a member of hashtag me too. We don't know. Verse four, then David sent messengers to get her and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having, finished, having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Now look at verse 5. Later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. And then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. The King James Version says, go home and cover and, and wash your feet. That means take a bath, enjoy yourself. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Why was that? It's because I believe that Uriah had been told, hey, your wife is fooling around with the king or the king's fooling around with your wife. Verse 10. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Oh, what an indicting comment. David, Joab, and the ark of God and the armies are out in the, the mud and out in the, and the trenches and they're sleeping out there and they're fighting a warfare. How can I go home to sleep with my wife? But here's the David. The Bible says in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, 
David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Dear ones, listen to me. David had the heart of a conqueror. From the day that he slew Goliath, God placed in him an anointing to conquer. However, because he didn't do what God called him to do, he no longer is conquering the enemy. Now he's conquering another man's wife. Don't take the anointings and the giftings of God in your life and use them in any way other than what God has called you to do. That's a sermon in and of itself this morning. Verse 12, we'll stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Verse 14, so the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. And then let's go down to verse 26 and 27. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. And she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. Read this last sentence with me, okay? Everybody aloud and loudly, here it goes. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Sometimes it may seem that you and I can get away with sin. Sometimes it may seem that we can get away with doing this or doing that. But there's a God who sees in secret and he's taking note of what's going on. The thing that David had done was displeasing to the Lord. Well, chapter 12, you remember the prophet Nathan comes and he rebukes David. He says, David, because you have done this sin, I want you to know that the sword is never going to leave your family. And it didn't take long because in chapter 13, the crown prince Ammon the crown prince Ammon, whom everyone adored and everyone knew would sit in David's throne one day. Ammon thinks he falls in love with his half-sister named Tamar. Tamar and Ammon have the same father but different mothers. And Ammon, you'll remember the story, he ends up raping his half-sister Tamar. In fact, the Bible says that the incident, look at, uh, you don't have this, let me just read it to you. Verse 21 2 Samuel 13, 21, when David heard what had happened, he was angry. David was angry, but there's no place in the scripture that we're told that David ever disciplined his son for incest. He never disciplined his son for rape. What Ammon had done was worthy of death, but there's no indication in the Bible that David ever did anything about it. I think it's because David himself was wrestling with shame. You see, once once the prophet came and confronted David with his own sin. David repented. We have Psalms chapter 51 where David repents. He says, oh Lord, create me a clean heart. 
Restore a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I mean, David does repent. But dear ones, there is still something that the Bible calls the law of sowing and the law of reaping. You can repent, but dear ones, it's not enough just sometimes to get forgiveness from God. You're also going to have to forgive yourself and forgive others if you want to get on with life because the devil wants to take you and pin you to the ground with shame and with a sense of condemnation. He wants to hold you back. Oh, how many parents are there who have not talked to their children about life-altering moral issues because mom and dad carry shame from the past? And dear ones, somebody said that pain is a filler, but shame is a killer. Now the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and the law of death. The devil wants to take you and he wants to position you in a corner filled with shame and filled with condemnation. And literally the devil, he, he, he wants to, 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 to make you, he wants to neuter you. He wants to bring you to the place where you'll never bear fruit in your Christian life. But the devil is a liar and the truth is not in him. And dear ones, we deal with shame by taking that shame to the cross and nailing it to the cross and asking God to forgive us. And then we've got to forgive ourselves. You are made in the image and the likeness and in the nature of our Lord God. When God looks at you, he loves you. You say, yes, but I did this and I did that. Well, if you did, then don't cross go. Don't collect $200. Run to the throne of grace. Run to the cross. Run to repent of your sins. God, I repent of this sin. Lord, I don't want it in my life. Forgive me. I don't have the strength to overcome this temptation. I don't have the strength in and of myself to overcome this difficulty. But Lord, I'm calling out for your grace. Lord God, I thank you that your grace is sufficient. And Lord God, I quit looking around me. I quit looking at other people and I look at you and I thank you for setting me free. Hallelujah. And having done that, then we've got to forgive ourselves. Let me illustrate it like this. Here's what I'm looking for. Something that's got some zeros behind it. So it's just a $10 bill. Who wants it? Okay. What, what, what if I take it and stomp on it? Who wants it now? What if I take it and I didn't really do that. Who wants it now? What if I take it and wad it up, throw it on the floor, and stomp on it again. Who wants it now? Why do you want it? You want it because you know that no matter how much abuse, no matter how much abuse this dollar bill, this $10 bill has taken, no matter how mistreated it's been, no matter how many wrong places it's been, no matter what it's done, it still carries value. Come up here, young man. You're the first hand I saw. Dear ones, you carry value. 
The devil wants to steal and kill and destroy. See, the devil didn't want David to confront his son about his wrongdoing. The devil doesn't want you to be able to take a stand. Jesus, I wish I had better words. I wish I was better at this. But the devil is a liar. The truth is not in him. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Now, chapter 13, we've got Ammon raping his sister. And then two years go by. David doesn't do anything. So the third oldest boy, Absalom, who's even more handsome than Ammon is, Absalom takes matters in his own hand and he kills his brother. So now not only do you have rape and incest in David's household, but you now you've got one son murdering another son. Again, the boy escapes to his granddad. His granddad is a king in an adjoining kingdom. The boy escapes and he's with his granddad in chapter 14. David brings Absalom back home. But you know what? There's no record in scripture that David ever sat down and said, Absalom, you deserve death. Absalom, what you did is not right. You took matters into your own hand. Son, you've got to be disciplined. There was no record of David ever disciplining his children. Chapter 15, you got Absalom's rebellion against David. He, he, he chases David off the throne. In fact, it says in chapter 15, verse 12, yeah, it says, while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for, look who he sends for, Ahithophel, one of David's counselors who lived in, I understand that's Jela. Jela is the way you pronounce that. Soon many others also joined Absalom and the conspiracy gained momentum. Well, dear ones, why in the world did this man, Ahithophel, turn away from David and start strengthening the hand of the, the rebellious young Absalom? And you got to go back to chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Stay with me here. Late one afternoon, this is chapter 11, verse 2. Late one afternoon after his midday rest. Okay, so David's taking a nap about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He then got up out of bed and walked on the roof of the palace. The roof of the palace was the highest place in Jerusalem. Later, when Solomon built the temple, that was the highest place. But right now, this is the highest place. He looked out over the city and noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the daughter of Eliam. And then we go over to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8. It says, These are the names of David's mightiest warriors. And then you, you, you go down to verse 34. It says, Ephelet, son of Ahashbei from Mecca. Now watch this. Pay attention. Eliam, son of Ahithiopal from Jailah. Eliam, son of Ahithiopal. I want you to get what's happened, dear ones. Bathsheba's got a daddy named Eliam. Eliam's got a daddy named Ahithiopal. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's granddaughter. He loves this little girl. He helped raise her, just like I love little Sophie, and I love for Sophie to run up and, and jump up in my arms. I'm sure Ahithophel had loved raising little Bathsheba. He saw her grow up. He saw her become a beautiful lady. He saw her turn down many suitors. And then Uriah the Hittite, 
comes, though he's older than she is, he proposes and she says, I do. They get married. Ahithophel is hopeful for, for great grandchildren now. He couldn't be more excited, but then he hears a rumor. Why your grandson-in-law is out fighting a battle, your granddaughter sleeping with the king and Ahithophel can't believe it. And then it gets even darker. Your granddaughter is pregnant by David. And then it gets even darker. David has brought your son-in-law back to Jerusalem and your son-in-law refused to sleep with his wife. And so David has had him killed in battle and Ahithophel can't believe it. Suddenly his love for David is turned to hatred and he says, if it's the last thing I do, I'm gonna get even with this guy. If it's the last thing I do, I'm gonna make him pay for this. If it's the last thing I do, I'm gonna destroy his life. And yet the man was wise enough not to try to attack David at that moment, but he bid his time. And when young Absalom comes back from Gerar, he sees his opportunity, and I believe it was Ahithophel who began having coffee with Absalom and says, Absalom, you should be king. Your old man is just too old for this job. You should be on the throne. And if you decide you want to do it, I will help you. And we see how deep his hatred is in chapter 17. Let me read this to you. I don't think we have it on the, on the screens. Let me just read this to you. It says in chapter 17, verse 1, Now Ahithophel urged Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men to start out after David tonight. I'll catch up with him while he is weary and discouraged. He and his troops will panic and everyone will run away. Then I will only kill him, the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride returns to her husband. See, he had it in his heart. He wanted to kill King David. What David did was horrible. What David did was unconscionable. What David did is without excuse. But Ahithophel decided to take matters in his own hand and he ignored some very important biblical principles. Number one, he decided that he would take matters in his own hand and he forgot that the battle is not yours and the battle is not mine, but the battle is the Lord's. How many of you know God knows how to fight your battles? In fact, David himself said, God will prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. But dear ones, hey, I don't think God prepares tables before those of us who decide we're going to fight our own battles. I don't think God prepares tables in front of those who are filled with bitterness and anger and resentment. He starts to prepare a table before you when you look up to heaven and say, Jesus, this hurts. This is painful. I don't have an answer for it, but Lord, I look to you because God, I believe that you are preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Somebody say hallelujah. Number two, he ignored the fact that vengeance belongs 
to God. Vengeance does not belong to you and me. In fact, listen to these words from Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Dear ones, when we take vengeance in our own hands, we're forgetting that we serve a God who is the only wise God. When we take vengeance in our own hands, we forget that there is a God who not only is he the only wise God, but he's the God who's the true judge of the universe. And he knows the end from the beginning and he can see every heart and he knows how to pull the pieces together. He knows how to balance the scales. He knows how to right the wrongs. He knows how to make all things right. And either we trust him or we don't trust him. Let me share with you four reasons we need to forgive those who abuse us and treat us wrongly. Number one, Jesus tells us to. Pretty simple. One day the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? He says, pray in this way. Our Father which art in heaven, pray it with me. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our, some of you say debts and some of you are saying sins, that's okay. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Dear ones, there's something about you and me the way God made us that you give God glory when you choose to say no to temptation and you say, Lord Jesus, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take this opportunity to be offended today. But Lord, even as this person has sinned against me, I choose to sin, not to sin. I choose not to fall into the trap of temptation. Number two, why do we forgive those who've mistreated us? Number two, unforgiveness prevents you and me, prevents our faith from being effective. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, dear ones, if you'll study the scriptures, I think you'll find that one of the things that will hinder miracles from taking place in your life is unforgiveness. Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, have faith in God. Whoever says to this mountain, be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them. And when you stand praying, forgive. And when he's just told on how to have mountain moving faith, he says, but then, and when you stand praying, forgive that your Father in heaven may forgive you also. Somebody once said forgiveness is a whole lot easier to teach on than it is to practice. And that's true. Number three, Jesus said that when you fail to forgive, you're literally turning yourself over to demonic, tormenting spirits. I refer you to Matthew chapter 18. Peter one day was feeling kind of gracious and magnanimous. And he says, Lord, how many times a day should I 
forgive. Seven times, I don't think Peter had ever heard any teaching on forgiveness till he met Jesus. He said, seven times, he says, not seven times, but seven times 70, 490 times a day, as much as is required. That's what you need to do. And then Jesus told a story. He said, there was a man who owed a king millions and millions of dollars. And the king says, it's time for you to repay me. And the man says, oh, king, just give me some more time. Here's the truth. The man probably could never, ever repay that debt. It was just way too big. He says, give me some more time. And the king graciously forgave that debt. Now, let's just pause and let me make this statement. Folks, when people forgive financial debts or any other kind of debts, it costs somebody. I mean, it doesn't just go away. I mean, sometimes we've got this idea in America that we can just not pay our debts. I talked to somebody the other day, doesn't attend our church, but was telling me, I, I, I've got these debts and I'm just not going to pay them. And I said, what's that going to do to your credit statement? He says, I don't care. I'm just not going to pay them. And I'm thinking, well, well, somebody has loaned some money to you and he thinks he's just, he's going to take the money from some big corporation. And I said, wait a minute. Do you know, do you know, you, you talk about taking away from the big banks. Let's just talk about the local banks. Do you know who the stockholders are in the local banks? I said, you got the stockholders and then you got the holding company. The holding company are the people that put the bank together and they get the holding company stock, which is a preferable stock. But then, do you know, it's your neighbors. It's the people down the street from you. It's the guy you're working with. It's just anybody who they, they, they may have gotten a little bit of money together and they bought a, a stock or two or three and, and they've invested in it. So when you're not paying your bills, you're stealing from them. Well, he didn't want to hear what I had to say. But see, for the king to say, I forgive you these millions of dollars, the king was having to pay that. He was going to have to pay it himself. And then this man goes out. You remember the story? He finds somebody that owes him a couple of hundred dollars and he chokes him. He says, give me the money. And he throws him into the debtor's prison. And when the king hears about it, he says, I forgave you all that money, but you wouldn't forgive somebody else. And he took the man, and the King James Version says, he turned him over to the tormentors. I just want to suggest to you that when you and I choose not to forgive, we are literally throwing ourselves over to the tormentors. And there are demon spirits from hell that will turn you every which way from loose. And you'll never be able to stop thinking about that thing which the other person has done to you. As I McMillan said, the moment I begin to hate another man, I become his slave. I'll never escape his tyrannical grasp on my mind. That leads us to the fourth point, and it's this. Negative emotions such as unforgiveness, resentment, rage, bitterness, and resentment, though initially directed outward, will eventually be turned inward and will create depression and it'll create death in you. Why in the world did Heath Oval go and hang himself? It wasn't just because his advice wasn't followed in first, 2 Samuel chapter 17. It was because he had been throwing off these negative emotions for years and years and years. I'm going to get David. He's going to pay for this. He's destroyed my, 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 my granddaughter's marriage. He's killed her husband. He's hurt my family. We can never recover from this. I'm going to make him pay. So here's, here's Ahithophel. He's, he's, he's venomous. He is so angry. But the day came that those negative emotions were no longer 
affecting anybody but him. Sometimes we take our grudges and our IOUs and we cut them up in little bitty, bitty pieces. We throw them in the wastebasket, but then we don't throw away the wastebasket. Sometimes we take our thoughts of he hurt me and she hurt me and somebody else hurt me. We put them in cold storage. But then every now and then we just let the ice melt so we can get them out and look at them again. Remember the story of the woman who was bit by a rabies-infested dog? She was bit by this rabies-infested dog, and she immediately sat down and began making a list of names. And somebody asked, Who's, who are all those people on your list? She said, these are people I'm going to bite before I die. Rage feels good. Unforgiveness and bitterness feels good because it, 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 it makes you feel like you're back in control when somebody hurts you, when you're devastated because somebody did something they shouldn't do. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe somebody has, has, has gotten on social media and, and, and just, just roasted you. And you feel powerless. Let me tell you, anger and rage gives you the false notion that you're back in charge. Hey, I'm not going to let this happen to me. I'm going to get them. The Bible says we reap what we sow. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Sometimes people are not very nice, even to pastors. Did you know that? Sometimes it happens People get mad at God and they take it out on the person they think who represents him. And I used to think I was practicing forgiveness because anytime somebody said or did anything that was not like Jesus to me, I just quickly, and I told Kathy this, I said, I just, I just forgive them. But what I never did is I never counted the cost of what it really means to forgive because when you forgive something, somebody's got to pay. There was a cost, and I found myself bitter, and I found myself resentful, and I found anger welling up inside me, and I couldn't figure why. And it was because I had never grieved the hurt and the pain. And I've told this story before. I've even written it in a, in a book. But to make a long story short, I ended up spending probably six to nine months. Every night, I didn't have responsibilities with the church I was sitting on our back porch and I was praying and I was thinking about I was thinking about things that had happened conflicts that had been unresolved ugly things that people had said and done and I think about it and I'd get angry inside and dear ones if you get angry when you think about what somebody's done to you that's a pretty good indication you've not yet fully forgiven them And I would take it to the cross and say, Jesus, would you forgive me for holding on to this unforgiveness 
Jesus, I give it to you. Give me the grace to forgive from my heart. Lord, I absorb, I absorb the cost of this. Lord, what they did wasn't right, but Lord Jesus, I want to be set free because I don't want to grieve the Holy Ghost. I want to be set free, Jesus. And I'll tell you, for those next three, six, nine months, I'd sit out there and I'd weep and I'd cry. But God did a huge work in my heart. And dear ones, I want you to know it's not that you, that you don't remember what somebody did. And it doesn't mean that when you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean you've got to trust them again. There are a lot of people I forgive and I probably don't want to trust. I'd probably be foolish to trust them. But I love them anyway. And I know I'm set free because I don't think about it anymore. It doesn't bug me anymore. <laughs> Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. You say, well, when you forgive somebody, do you have to make yourself vulnerable to them? Absolutely not. Man, if somebody's been abusing you, if they abused you in the past, you can forgive them, you can give victory, but you stay away from them. Okay? Chaplain Alex Taylor. I, I saw Janet earlier. Janet, where? Oh, here he is, right here. I remember years ago, Alex shared the story when he was working in the prison system in Texas. One of the things he did was he was working with families who had loved ones who were murdered by other people. And those people would be in the penal system. And many times those people would be going to the electric chair. Their life would be ending. And Brother Alex shared with me, he said, he said, he said I've seen family members want to go and witness the execution of the person that killed their family member. Hoping for some sense of satisfaction. But Alex, am I correct in saying many times they didn't have a sense of satisfaction. Many times they walked away just with a sense of emptiness. Why? Because vengeance doesn't belong to you and me. There is a judge. There is a judge. He's the creator of the universe. And one day he's going to right every wrong. One day he's going to balance every scale. One day he's going to make everything right, but we don't live in a perfect world. And dear ones, the reason Jesus told us to love and bless and do good and pray for those that treat us like enemies is because he knows that vengeance belongs to him and not to you and me. The reason Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do because Jesus knew that we needed that example. You say, but I've just been through so much. Well, Jesus went through a lot. He died. The Bible says in Roma, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 12, that he endured the cross and he despised that shame. The devil tried to bring shame on him and the devil will try to bring shame on you. But I'm telling you who the sun sets free is free indeed. When I was at Regent University in Virginia Beach, I met a young man who did his graduate work with us and he became a pastor in Virginia. He's pastoring there to this day. His name is Tom and Tom was raised in the state of Texas. He was raised in the lap of luxury. His father's a medical doctor. Tom was raised with everything and anything he wanted. Tom said when he turned 16, his father gave him a brand new Mustang. 
I mean, that was a hot car back, it's a hot car today, but back in the day it was really a hot car. He got a brand new Mustang. What his father didn't know is that Tom had a drinking problem as a teenager. And one night Tom is intoxicated and he's driving his car around town with his buddies and he smashes into another car and he kills a 42 year old father of three children. Tom said he was in the hospital personally. He was in the hospital for three months recovering. And he said when he realized what he had done, he thought he would die. He just couldn't believe that he had taken somebody else's life. Not to mention the life of a father of three small children who left a loving wife. And Tom said he had just about ready to get discharged. He said there was a knock on his hospital door and in walked a young woman with three small children. It was this man's family. Tom said they were the last people he wanted to see. The woman introduced herself, introduced the children, said, Tom, how are you? And then she said something Tom said he never expected to hear. Tom, we've been praying for you. And Tom, we're hurting. I'm hurting over the loss of my husband and these kids are hurting over the loss of their father, but we want you to know something. We want you to know that we forgive you just as God in Christ has forgiven us of our sins. We forgive you and we thought you needed to know that. Tom said he got out of the hospital. His family didn't go to church. His friends didn't go to church. But he found a a Bible-believing, spirit-filled church. And he started to go, and Tom gave his life to Jesus Christ. He got filled with the Holy Ghost and power. He says God began working mightily in his life. It didn't take place overnight. It took time. It was line upon line and precept on precept. And it took a long time where he, until he could Say, Jesus, would you forgive me for my drunkenness and for my recklessness and for that accident? And Lord, help me to forgive myself. When you hate yourself, when you dislike the person you are, when you can't forgive yourself, you're not hurting anybody but you. I say you're not. You are. You're hurting all of us because we need you. We need you to be yourself. We need you walking in love. We need you walking in hope and walking in faith. We need the Holy Spirit to dwell inside you in an unhindered, unhindered fashion. Because Ephesians 4 says that when we fail to forgive that we are grieving the Holy Ghost. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You'd say, Pastor Terrell, I just need God's grace in my life. I'm not asking you if you know Jesus. I'm not asking you about your walk with the Lord. But I am asking you, are things right between you and God? And do you, do you have things in your heart that you need to shift around? Do you have unforgiveness in your heart? Do you have bitterness? Have people hurt you and treated you wrongly? 
and left you scratching your head wondering, what am I going to do? Do you struggle? Do you struggle with that sense of shame and that sense of condemnation? I just want you with every head bowed, every eye closed, I just want you to lift your hand. Just lift your hand. By, by virtue of your lifted hand, you're saying, Pastor, I need prayer. I need help in this area. Come on, thank you, thank you, thank you. I see those hands. Thank you. Anybody else, Pastor, I need. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Anybody else? Pastor Terrell, I just need some help. I need some help. Let me just remind you that our God is a refuge and strength. He's a very present help in time of trouble. He's our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in time of trouble. Hallelujah. We pray right now that God uses this message to plant good eternal seeds deep into your soul. For more information, visit our website, evangelag.org. Evangel's all about making the name of Jesus famous and His church glorious. We love God, love people, and love life. And we're here for you, working to help draw people from impossible situations into a loving and friendly circle of hope where answers are found and acceptance is given. We invite you to join us for any of our services, Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday evenings at 7. We're located at 2300 Old Bainbridge Road in Tallahassee. We have fantastic programs for kids and youth and small groups to make deeper connections. And we pray that God blesses you richly and abundantly as you continue to seek Him first in all of your life.